Hello, and welcome to the Bitcoin.Review podcast. This is an ad-free pod. Thank you so much for streaming those ads. We hope to uh, bore you even further today with some uh, fantastic, the most recommended folks in the Bitcoin estates area, because some of them are actually certified uh, people and have uh, legal professions. We just want to know that uh, this is not uh, legal advice and is also not tailored to your specific location, especially if you're not American. <laughs> so uh, why don't I intro some of the folks here? So hello, Peter. Good morning or good afternoon. Thanks for having me. Uh, thanks for coming. And uh, do you want to uh, let us know what, what do you do? Sure thing. I run a multifamily office um, looking after investment advice for a small number of uh, high net worth families based in Sydney. And I look after a number of other clients for custody Bitcoin and uh, looking after their Bitcoin advice across the globe. So, Thank you. Amanda, thanks for coming. Hi, thank you for having me. So what is it that you do? I am a trust and estates attorney. I am based out of Pennsylvania. I work for a law firm named Stradley, Ronan, Stevens & Young, which is a regional law firm. And I do trust and estate planning, administration, and then a little bit of litigation as well. Wonderful. Jeff, nice seeing you again. Likewise, man. Uh, just for the listeners out there, Jeff Vandrew. Uh, I'm an attorney, a certified public accountant, and a certified financial planner. Currently, I'm general counsel for Unchained Capital. Before that, uh, I was head of retirement and inheritance services for Unchained Capital. And before that, I had my uh, own law firm practicing as a tax lawyer, did a lot of trust and estates work. I've been published in trust and estates, taught continuing ed in that area, uh, as, long, as well as a lot of business transactional work. So long career, a lot of different stuff, which ended up with this GC role, which I never would have expected when I started out, you know, almost 20 years ago. Yeah. And then Shane is growing, I guess. So um, Jared, uh, thanks for coming. Hey, NVK, by way of introduction, uh, Jared Pierce. Uh, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Bitcoin Planner. I focus uh, practicing law in North Carolina, consult all over the United States uh, for probates administration issues involving Bitcoin. My role at the law firm here, despite owning it, is uh, focusing on probate litigation issues. Uh, basically, we litigate when you fuck up and don't have an inheritance plan. That is what we do. That is our bread and butter. That's how we put steak on the table for breakfast. <laughs> Wonderful. Uh, I hear those stories every day from uh, from the litigator, estate litigator wife. So, guys, I guess like I mean, this is this is a massive topic. You know, it's been quite a while. Like Bitcoin has been around now for for a little while. In the early days, you know, there wasn't much to guide us on on how to navigate your estate if you had Bitcoin. As you guys understand on the show, I mean, the law doesn't really give a crap about private keys and cryptography. <laughs> you know, a judge may award somebody who doesn't have a private key a huge chunk of the value and, uh, and you may have to comply. So things have to be prepared for the people that don't know, even if you are not a you know super wealthy person, even if you don't have very complicated estate, right? You don't have like many properties and many things. You know, in most jurisdiction, uh, if you don't have a proper will, 
you're going to fall into probate and you're going to have the state sort of like sorted out things in, in, in however is the, the default of that location. For example, where I live, if you don't have a will, you know, your partner gets 250K off the top, period, right? Your common law spouse, right? Kind of thing. So, you know, it doesn't matter that you hated the person or that you were separated before or, or you know, if things were not sorted out, that person is going to get it. And that could have massive consequences when it comes to Bitcoin, because, you know, one is you may not have wanted them to sell and pay a ton of taxes on that. It might be a for sale. People may end up less money. Anyways, I'm not going to get into the weeds uh, since you guys uh, are a lot more knowledgeable than I am on some of this, these issues. I think it's worth maybe getting into what would be a good starting point for somebody to start to look into how they should organize their state, especially when it comes to their Bitcoin pile. I might start off on that, if that's okay, where... Um, you know, we start thinking about estate planning at the very inception of thinking about buying Bitcoin. A lot of people, I think, you know, have gone into the space, just buy Bitcoin, whether it's in a personal name or, um, Jeff, I really like your work with, you know, the IRA product that Unchained's done. We in Australia work with a different uh, similar type product called a self-managed super fund, which is a pension scheme that we work with here, which allows you to by Bitcoin. But we want to look at, to start with the process, what, what entities or what type of um, legal constructs we want to be purchasing that, that Bitcoin in, in the fact that we want to be having this as an intergenerational asset that we pass down from generation to generation. And the, the structures that we work with here fundamentally draw down into four different different things. You've got a personal, you can hold it in your personal name, you can hold it in a company name, you can hold it in a trust, and there are certain types of, of trust that you can work with. And then we have our pension scheme that you can put money into. And thinking from an intergenerational perspective, there are you know four options on the table for us here, and it's probably a similar type schematic with Canada and the US. And we personally, I try and talk to clients about having it in the most tax effective structures, but also um, the most enduring form of structures too. And when you overlay some of those thoughts around um, the longevity of this asset and the potential growth in value of it, we want to be planning from a long-term perspective to have that in a, a legal construct that, and this might sound particularly unpopular to a lot of um, Bitcoin maxis, but you know, thinking about 10, 20, 30 years down the track, we want to have the ability in the legal construct to effectively borrow on that uh, Bitcoin in the future and don't want to have any constraints. So in Australia anyway, that rules out effectively doing that in a company because we've got a, you know, a tax component that if you borrow money from your company, you've got to pay it back at a, a penalised interest rate. In our pension schemes, you're not allowed to borrow money against any assets in there. So we're down to really only two fundamental legal entities that we can uh, purchase that But Peter, in. what happens to people that already have assets, right? Like how how would they fold in the existing Bitcoin that they have with like probably a near, a very low acquisition uh, price, right? A very low basis cost. You know, I know that there's complicated ways of, of doing that, like in the best sort of way, but just... You know, like, would they fold it into a business? Would they fold in into uh, a trust? And and also, you know, may, they may not want certain piles to be known by the state in certain points of their lives because they, you know, things can get complicated. So people have those concerns. 
Great question. With that, we look at it, there, there are some uh, capital gains tax concerns or things that we want to be understand before we change any entities. What are the what are the tax consequences of any transfers that we're making between different structures? In Australia, we're allowed to, if there's no change of beneficial owner, there are some capital gains tax relief that you can gain by transferring that in. And if, if that's available, then you know, predominantly the best legal structure we believe to have it in over here anyway is a, a discretionary trust because that, that affords uh, the most flexibility from a longevity perspective. It allows you to have huge flexibility with any beneficiaries within that trust. It also allows you to have corporate trustees, corporate beneficiaries, which from a tax, um, well, it, it'll give you tax advantages that you otherwise might not be able to get in other structures. So it, it's really about providing optionality without disadvantaging yourself from a, from a tax perspective in pursuing that. And there's also a, a much better asset protection around holding it in a trust as opposed to holding it in personal. So that's talking to, to what we see here and we're very interested to see what um, what it looks like in the US. It sounds like it's very similar to uh, to what we have in Canada. Uh, Jeff, you do some of this in the US, right? So I assume trust structures are similar, but states have all very different sort of tax consequences. Yeah, I, I just want to take a brief step even further back than that, because I think it's really important before we even get into this stuff to sort of break down the difference, because a lot of Bitcoiners struggle with this concept between title and possession. Those are two different concepts, uh, and you want them to be unified and synchronized with each other. And what I mean by that is... You know, you may hold your Bitcoin off the grid. It may be totally non-KYC. And because of that, uh, you may feel like, well, I don't need any of this in place because whoever has my private keys when I die, they're going to get my Bitcoin. So why do I care about this? Unfortunately, that's only half right because they'll have possession of your Bitcoin, but they will not have valid title to your Bitcoin. Title is sort of your legal entitlement to your Bitcoin. And even if you're not particularly concerned about that, which I can totally sympathize with, you know, there's an old saying that you may not be interested in the law, but the law is very interested in you, <laughs> right? So... Other people, other relatives, whoever the case may be, that's not going to stop them from filing a suit to try to recover that Bitcoin. And you don't want the person that's, you know, recovering your keys to have to be like on the run from the law their whole life, right? Uh, that's not a great outcome. So you want those two things to be very much, you know, unified, which is why you need the two pieces to the puzzle, both the, the legal end, which is the will or trust that handles the title, and then also that key succession, which handles the possession. So, you know, if we just sort of go back to very basics here, what people should really do is make sure that they at least have a will and is not a holographic will. Right. I mean, I assume that in most, you know, we have uh, two litigators here, so they, they can probably uh, give us a little bit of clarity on that. But uh, as I understand, there's a lot of issues with holographic wheels. And if people may not know what that, those are, it's simply when you write yourself in a piece of paper with your handwriting saying, hey, and to my cat, I leave 90% of my estate. And you think that those words will have strength in court and is often not the case, at least not in most jurisdictions I know. So can you guys just sort of like give a little bit of a walkthrough of like for Amanda and, and Jared, like oftentimes what do you find to be, you know, nothing is foolproof. Things are still going to get contested, especially if there's a lot of money and a lot of people. But like, 
what is the bare minimum that that somebody should look into so that they have a higher chance of having their will uh, respected when it comes to the distribution? Well, just to get back to what I think that all clients need or, or clients who are concerned about this issue is in Pennsylvania, when I'm doing talking to a client about estate planning, I tell them what I think the foundation of their documents should be. And in, in Pennsylvania, it's four different documents. It's a will, general durable power of attorney, a healthcare power of attorney, and advanced care directive. And depending on their goals and um, their asset level, then they might need additional planning on top of that. But that's kind of the base of their pyramid. And what you're saying about holographic wills is a holographic, a holographic will is a will that someone you know, can scratch on a napkin, on a post-it note. And in Pennsylvania, in order for a will technically to be valid, all that it needs to be is to be written down, either typed or handwritten, and signed at the end. In order for probate to go the most smoothly, it needs to have a self-proving affidavit, which is specific language at the end, basically saying that it was witnessed by two people and a notary, and it should be accepted for probate. If you don't have it a self-proving affidavit, then there could be issues at the probate where the people who witnessed it have to sign an affidavit saying that they saw you sign and things like that. So Jared, I don't know if it's the same in North Carolina. Yeah, yeah, it's quite similar. I've, I've spent a fair amount of my career. I've been practicing law for 14 years in North Carolina. This is my 14th year. A good portion of that has been litigating caveat proceedings, which are challenges to wills. The thing that I think is important to begin, and, and you know, we seem to be taking a lot of steps back in these conversations, and I think it's important to find a good foundation. If we're going to talk about Bitcoiners making inheritance planning, I, th I think the big challenge that we have as a community is understanding what an inheritance plan can do, the associated counterparty risk that is involved in leveraging the law understanding that the Cantillion effect has application in the law. The closer you draw yourself to the law, the less of the relative effects you experience of the law. And that's, a, that's applicable in many circumstances, but to pretend that there's no counterparty risk is obviously problematic, even if you execute the most handsome will that can or trust that it could ever be drafted. But I think it's also important to acknowledge that there are a plethora of really hardcore and some paper-handed Bitcoiners out there that don't see value in inheritance planning because their plan is extra legal. Their plan is to live off the grid, pass this uh, outside of the confines of the law. And uh, I think as, as as while I do a limited amount of, of estate planning and most of my work is probate litigation and handling when you know estate planning lawyers fuck things up, uh, I would say that's probably a, a much more apt description of what I do in a day. Some plan is better than no plan. And I think that's an important part, even if your plan doesn't involve a will or a trust, just making sure that your family can keep possession of the keys is an important part of the puzzle. When you have no inheritance plan, the default laws of your particular jurisdiction apply, and you have to go. You are forced into the probate process uh, through a process called intestacy. Intestacy means you fucked up and you didn't have a, a legal will, but that doesn't mean that your assets, so long as you have possession of them, which is what Jeff was just describing a few moments ago, if you've got your keys secure that's an important part of the puzzle. But I think we can't confuse the key management strategies with inheritance planning. Yeah, so, so there is like a few major things uh, like 
not being a lawyer <laughs> or a financial planner and how we would describe it as, you know, as a Bitcoiner, you're going to have a few things here. One is, you know, you want your will. Two is you probably want that will to be, you know, written by a will writer, right? Like a, a lawyer that specializes in that. And then you need to take a look at the tax consequences of that will, regardless if it's Bitcoin or not Bitcoin, because the taxes could be quite onerous, literally destroying <laughs> the money that is to be distributed. And then you have to look into, you know, like how are the assets like Bitcoin itself, how it's being held currently, right? How you have custody of those keys to be passed on, right? And then how family has recoverability if this is outside of a key management solution that is, you know, managed, let's put it this way. Like a lot of people like don't do a few of these items, right? And, you know, like go find the keys on the third oak, uh, buried under the third oak on the, on the backyard. It's not going to help you with taxes. It's not going to help you with the family recovering if you haven't explained to them how to recover those keys, it's not going to help you, you know, fight the family that might want to cut to that. And it's not going to help you with the state wanting a cut of that too. Everybody wants a cut when somebody dies. That's the reality, right? There's one part we didn't, that didn't come up. And I know Jared specifically is very passionate about this too, because I've heard him give a lot of good talks on this. And that's something very somewhat unique to Bitcoiners are the privacy concerns involving this, right? If you're like me, I don't worry very much actually about being hacked. I worry about like a $5 wrench, right? And and one of the issues with the probate process in the U.S. Uh, is that it's a public process. So if your Bitcoin is passing through your will or passing through intestacy, the people that are getting that, like their names and addresses are going to get entered into the public record. And that may not be something you want. So that is another issue that you're definitely going to want to plan for. In most jurisdictions in the U.S., the reason I always say most, by the way, if you're out there and you're listening and you're in Louisiana, uh, you are not in a comp, you are in a more different jurisdiction than our friend Pete in Australia is because you're subject to French civil law rather than British common law like the rest of us. But in most jurisdictions in the U.S., you're probably going to want to look at a living trust, even if they're not common in your jurisdiction generally. So, for instance, in certain states like New Jersey, a living trust is not a particularly commonly used thing because the probate process in New Jersey is so simple as compared to a state like California, for instance. But even in those states where it's very simple, it's still very public and people will be able to get copies of those records if they're motivated to go do so. So I did, before we move forward, just want to get that privacy concern in there and mention that living trusts, even if you're in a jurisdiction where they're less frequently used as a Bitcoiner, their importance is a lot of times magnified. Well, I mean, not having the bad guys know that you have coins is, is one of the first one security uh, methods you can employ. Can I um, just jump in there and ask Jeff a question? Sure. In our jurisdiction, we have the ability to effectively transfer assets to a will, like to a, to a new trust, and it basically can be for the benefit of the living, but the beneficiaries can be on there. And so... The person living who's giving their Bitcoin to, to say, their children um, can have full access, full control of that for yeah. their life. And then when they pass, basically it goes to the kids without any, without any contest. Everyone has effectively already got ownership of those Bitcoins, so it doesn't go through any sort of probate process. And um, it's far more tax effective than, say, leaving it through an estate. And it obviously represents more problems because from a family law perspective, it 
brings up the fact that they own those coins. So there's, you know, family law potential problems or conflicts there, but it's um, a neat way of getting around certain yeah, things. Yeah, so that, that's actually what I was referring to. So in the States, we call that, Peter, a revocable living trust is the term we use for that. So that's what I was speaking about. It's very slightly different from what you said. It's probably, from what you're saying, it's a little more easier to challenge in the U.S. than it might be in Australia. And it's also tax neutral in the U.S. It doesn't really give in and of itself any tax benefits, although you can add tax beneficial language in there the way you would in a will. But generally, this conceptually, same thing. We would call that a revocable living trust. Thanks. Yeah, the, the trust here, essentially, you have a freeze once you move it in and uh, taxation happens with the freeze value, right? Anything past that, the new value is accrued inside the trust. And then that's just, you know, as, as you dole it out or whatever you do, then th that's how you handle it. But when it's passed on to them, it's passed on in life, right? So because they're just trust beneficiaries. They don't pay the taxes until it's given to them from the trust. So in the States, it would be a little different than that. Just very briefly, what you described would be in the States, I'm oversimplifying a bit and how an irrevocable trust would normally work. What Peter described and what I was referring to would be how a revocable living trust uh, would typically work in the States. Just an FYI. Okay. Yeah. There are different benefits to a revocable trust versus an irrevocable trust in the United States. So with a revocable trust, obviously, if if it if you it's important to you to still have control of the asset, the whole term revocable means that you can change, alter, or amend the trust at any time during your lifetime. But it would, you know, essentially what Jeff said, provide the privacy um, benefits of avoiding probate. An irrevocable trust, if you transfer your assets into that, you have to give up control of that asset and you can't change. I mean, that's simplifying it, but you can't change, alter, or amend the trust afterwards without court approval. So you would have to appoint an independent trustee that could basically effectively manage the asset. But the benefit of that is, is that at the time of transfer, that's when it gets the assets out of your estate. So any growth that the Bitcoin would have in your trust. So if you transfer it now and it moons at the next halving, then that growth grows tax-free as far as your federal applicable exclusion rate. So when I was referring to the federal applicable exclusion rate, that means that in the United States, there is a number that you can give away during lifetime or at death without incurring any federal estate taxes. So right now for 2023, that number is 12.92 million. So if you transfer 12.92 million into an irrevocable trust now, that uses your lifetime exemption. But if it grows, that growth isn't subject to that 40% federal estate tax that it would be subject to if you were just holding it in your own name when you die. Yeah, it's amazing how trusts are essentially like the best vehicle that there is, but they do come with a cost complication. It can get pretty hairy. And, and if you're doing uh, the type of trust that we have here and the second one you described there, you can't change the rules of the trust. If you change the rules of the trust, at least here, you essentially subject to the trust being dissolved and then you have to pay a lot of taxes. So uh, you have to be really sure as to what you want to do ahead of time and essentially not change your mind to the end of your wealth through many generations from now. <laughs> so who who would you say that that 
like a, a trust uh, would be a, a better vehicle for assuming they already have a bit of a bit of wealth. What's realistically worth for people to getting into into this more complicated uh, legal frameworks for their wealth? Yeah, I could take that one. So pretty much if you have any significant amount of Bitcoin, to be honest with you, you're going to at least want a revocable living trust just for the privacy stuff we talked about, right? Like I wouldn't want a public record floating out there showing how much Bitcoin I had, right? So if you don't want that for your kids as a Bitcoiner, that's a concern that most people don't have, but you have to think about, right? In terms of an irrevocable trust, that you're typically starting to look at once your estate is over, and Amanda spoke about this really well, uh, the applicable threshold for federal death taxes. Now, that may be lower if you're in a state that has state death taxes, but there are not too many of those states anymore. They've mostly been abolished or harmonized themselves with the federal threshold. And I believe, did you say, uh, it changes every year with inflation, so sometimes I lose track. Did you say it's $23.9 million now, Amanda, for a married couple? It's for an individual, it's 12.92. So I'm an attorney, not a mathematician. What is that times two? Uh, 25.84. Yeah, so about 25 if you're married, half of that if you're single. Yeah. Oh, you guys are very fortunate. Over here, I think it's, uh, I think it's, there, there is no exemption. It goes straight up there. It's uh, give me your 25%. Well, and uh, do you want to laugh how much the politics have changed behind this, by the way? When I started practicing a zillion years, Years ago, the federal estate tax threshold, married or single, was six hundred and seventy-five thousand dollars, and now we just talked about it being over twenty-five million for a married couple. So that's how much the political circumstance behind death taxes has changed in the states just over my not even my lifetime, just my time being a practicing yeah. uh, tax lawyer. Peter, I assume for you in Australia is very similar to Canada in that sense. They are just going to take as much as they can right away. Even better, they take zero. It's a great place to die. Okay, it's a good place to die. Same with New Zealand. Mm. <laughs> okay. Yeah, Yeah. no, Canada is not a good place to die. Going back to what Jeff said about the political climate here in the United States, something that's important to note is that the current applicable exclusion rate was put into effect in 2017, but it also has a sunset clause. So if Congress at this point does nothing that number effectively gets cut in half on January 1, 2026. So unless they introduce new litigation- So die sooner 12- than later is what you- <laughs> or, or just if you're going to use a trust, transfer it now. And then if the number goes down, you got money out of your estate for free. There you go. Yeah. It's funny how tricky these things get. So here's one one concern, right? You know, in a standard sort of uh, estate where you own the Bitcoin personally, if you want that to have a little bit more teeth in court, you're going to probably want to list the amounts on the wheel, which are absolutely terrible for your privacy, your security. You may not want family to know uh, until you die how much there is. So I think like a you know, at least a, a small upgrade you could have there is to like at least maybe fold that into a corporation where the corporation is assessed 
you know, as a total value, right? And then you can at least not have coins listed. I don't know, you know, if all jurisdictions are like that, but but here will be one way you get around some of this doxing of the specific amounts. You can also, there's good ways of passing on the shares of corporations in within life and, you know, things like that. You know, and then the trust is even better because, you know, it's appropriate sort of way for you to do all these things. And you can even combine things, right? You can have specific corporations holding corps that, when I say corporation is how we do them in Canada, but for the for the classification of a corporation, let's just assume it's like a, a legal entity with shareholders. And, you know, they're all going to have like different nuances on how they're classified depending on where you live. But, you know, you can have this this sort of like entities with shareholders where the trust is actually the shareholder. And, and you sort of like, you can complicate further. And as a layperson, uh, a good way of seeing is the more you complicate your estate with these vehicles and, and uh, this, this uh, uh, receptacles of, of wealth, the more flexibility it gives you in the future. And it gives the distribution of the estate later too, because they're going to have more vassals to play with. They're going to have better ways of dividing things. At least that seems to be the, the takeaway that you know, at least I get from seeing uh, how you can do these things. One um, question on that, and I'm really curious to see how it works, you know, in everyone's jurisdiction, but basically we do a risk assessment of what's our greatest risk of loss of coins. And being in this space for a long time, you know, I think there is a an overweighting to the risk of the government taking our Bitcoin. And from a statistical perspective, unfortunately, the, the highest risk of loss of Bitcoin is literally the, the one we sleep next to, our, our partner, with a divorce rate in Australia of you know two in three and in the US it's marginally higher. There are risk mitigations that we take from an inheritance perspective, which helps to mitigate a very effective family law court that we've got here. And we have you know, when creating wills for clients, we've got a simple will, which is basically, hey, I leave it to so-and-so, or what we call a, a complicated will, which involves a testamentary trust that upon death, basically assets are ushered into a trust that is set up only upon death. And that, in our jurisdiction anyway, gives the greatest legal protection against a family law court battle that a client's beneficiary that may face in the future. And, and that testamentary trust can then be used basically for for the next 80 years for that beneficiary is there something that you know in the US you guys have that gives you the that sort of legal protection from a family law court perspective or from divorce you're talking about like divorce by exactly your Jeff life? thank you now, yeah. now so in the states we have Again, I'm going to exclude Louisiana. Unfortunately, you'll have to listen to a podcast. In We're France. just going to assume Louisiana doesn't <laughs> count. I think that's probably the best way of describing it. Yeah. And that's it. It's like Quebec. Yes, exactly. That's exactly the best uh, analogy there. So you have you, you basically got two two broad systems in the U.S. as to property rights as they relate to divorce. Uh, in most of the country, we have just a regular common law property system similar to what you'd have in Australia or Britain. In states that used to be part of Mexico, plus Wisconsin, which is the outlier, uh, you have Spanish, what's called community property law. So community property states, uh, <laughs> pardon my language, but like if you're the wealthier spouse and you're getting divorced, you're just screwed. Uh, unless your spouse signed what's called in those states a uh, they call it a transmutation agreement uh, where your spouse specifically agrees 
to what's called transmutate certain property from being a separate a community property. Like a prenup. It is similar to a prenup. Uh, it, prenup would be what we have in common law jurisdictions. Yeah. In common law jurisdictions, it's almost as bad as it is in community <laughs> property jurisdictions. Uh, in a common law jurisdiction, there is at least a slightly broader classification of property that can escape that system. In a common law jurisdiction, at least your property while you're not divorced is yours. Believe it or not, in a community property jurisdiction, like if you live in California, there is no such thing as like your paycheck does not belong to you even while you're not divorced. It belongs to you and your wife. So those sort of things vary back and forth. But the short story is the U.S. is much tougher in a divorce uh, than the way you've described Australia. You're basically going to have to get a premarital agreement. If you didn't get a premarital agreement, there are postmarital agreements. In theory, a postmarital agreement can accomplish all the same stuff as a premarital agreement. The only difference between the two is whether you signed it before you got married or after you got yes. married. Postmarital agreements are more heavily scrutinized by the court for things like undue influence. The court can say like, well, yeah, your spouse signed this agreement. However, you know, she was afraid that you were going to do X, Y, Z to her because she was already living with you at the time and you were already married. So we're going to invalidate this agreement. So it's uh, U.S. very, very, very difficult jurisdiction in terms of marital law, premarital and postmarital agreements, or if you live in a community property jurisdiction, transmutation agreements are going to be very key. Divorce law is very uh, jurisdictionally intriguing issue because it's governed mostly by state law. There's very little in terms of federal law that's going to be binding. So, I mean, I think this is a challenging conversation to have about divorces. One of the things I think is worth mentioning is that if you do get divorced, if you're a Bitcoiner and you're planning on, you know, yeeting out of a relationship and you sign like a, a property settlement agreement uh, as a result of a divorce decree, that can have binding effects for years and years and years, even on the probates of your estates after death. And this is a constant problem that we see is that people, they accumulate wealth, they unburden themselves from the baggage of a, a, a deadbeat spouse or whatever, and they sign this support agreement and then they, they die in a horrific boating accident. The estate will still have an obligation to pay out those beyond death that can and will affect your Bitcoin holdings, especially if you're not doing something to mitigate or avoid probate completely. You know, trust planning, uh, inheritance-based trust plans, or trust-based inheritance plans, excuse me, is a, is a vehicle by which we can avoid probate to the public process that Jeff was talking about. A will-based plan will put you in probate in the United States, and having no plan at all will always force you into probate. And again, that's a homogenized approach at describing how the probate process works in, in most states. Obviously, there's privacy components to it as well. But one of the, the things that happened and I thought was very telling at Bitblock Boom, uh, I gave a talk where I recorded a call to the local courthouse where I requested some random file of a random client. I blacked out the name, just even though it's public record, and they straight up just emailed it to me while I was on the phone, and I and I played that recording for everyone in the room. It basically went along the lines of, hey, can you please send me John Smith's file? He died on this date. And they were like, yeah, what's your email? You know, In those documents, if you're going to end up in court, your, your, your ex-spouse is going to find out, your child support obligations are going to come out of the woodwork, and this is why planning for death, but also planning for incapacity is such a major and critical component to this. Yeah. Amanda, you were going to add something? 
Yeah, just to go back to Peter's question about what happens if your beneficiary inherits some of your Bitcoin and then they get divorced. Uh, as Jeff was saying, it depends a lot on what jurisdiction you live in. But in community property states, inheritance and gifts are considered separate property of the beneficiary. So if I leave my daughter my Bitcoin, that is considered her separate property unless she does something to make it marital property, such as titling it in joint name, or um, if she were going to transfer it to some sort of account that had her spouse's name on it, that would make it marital property. But another benefit of using trust is for the asset protection qualities that they allow. So in the event of a divorce, the spouse of your beneficiary would be considered or kind of like a creditor. And the trust, if it's drafted correctly, would prevent that spouse from accessing those funds or that Bitcoin in the event of a divorce. So why don't we, uh, why won't we talk about some horror stories and some, uh, some very egregious mistakes people make? I don't know how many cases you guys have had so far, like directly involving Bitcoin, but you know, if we have stories that are directly related to Bitcoin, it would be really nice too, because I find that, especially for people who are not lawyers, just hearing some examples often give a little bit more clarity onto like how this stuff actually works. So if you guys want to go around now and, uh, but, but get the box of tissues, I'm going <laughs> to make you weep. Yeah. You know, like, and, and also maybe like, uh, yeah. So, so let's start like a story each here first where it, it did involve Bitcoin. I think it's, uh, it's important for people to see how even though somebody may have a private key uh, that doesn't mean that you have title to that or that's you know it gets tricky very fast so where do we start i think jared is itching for it so oh i'm i've got i got like six slots <laughs> loaded the crazy part about this and this is what i love about the bitcoin community like shit, shit goes wrong it falls off the rails you know you can you've got to deal with the law you know this is all a matter of public record as well so a fair amount of this i can describe quite accurately and obviously i'm not going to talk about any client specific names but I had a client who was quite wealthy, run some successful businesses and, and started stacking, stacking sats pretty early on. Over the course of his life, he accumulated pretty close to the federal death tax exemption limits and died suddenly in a horrific accident uh, in his home. He had no children, no wife, and just left mom and dad who were divorced. So right there, no estate plan, no thought about the future. Uh, shit ton of cash, shit ton of sats, and was a data privacy nut. This guy, he had backups of his backups of his backups. I mean, if if the autopsy was done and they didn't check his keister, they may have missed a private wallet, uh, private, some hardware wallet somewhere. Point being, we find out we get hired. The uh, the the spouse of the the mother hires their own lawyer. They are fighting over who's going to become the administrator of the estate. The, the clerk of court, who doesn't isn't required in North Carolina to have a college degree, is just an elected official, says, well, I don't know what to do with you guys. I'm just going to let you both be uh, co-administrators. The attorney's fees on this case probably ate about a third of the entire value of the estate because we fucked and fought every inch along the way. The difficulty here is that we got hold of the laptops. We started going through everything. We spent tens of thousands of dollars hiring computer experts to 
look for hidden partitions. We hired, uh, shout out to Dustin Dietmer uh, out there, who is a fucking wizard to help tra- uh, to help crack private keys that we had found to locate the, the, the Bitcoin. And I was finding wallets with 77 Bitcoin on like it was a goddamn joke. Everywhere I looked, we were just finding Bitcoin. And all of this just got eaten up in estate expenses. The only people that walked away from this case with a smile on their face were the lawyers skipping to deposit those checks. And this is a classic example of what no planning can do is that you force your heirs to have the default rules of intestacy applied to the distribution of the assets. He didn't have any kids, but surely he didn't want mom and dad to fight endlessly over it. And my God, it's the most contentious case I've ever done, especially Bitcoin related. Shout out again to Dustin and JC Crown for being fucking ninjas in Bitcoin and helped me out. Yeah, no, it, it is fascinating how like when there is dispute, if it does reach the lawyers, the lawyers always win. Absolutely. <laughs> it, it is absolutely fascinating how much money it, it goes into, you know, like you know, litigation set aside a hundred K just to say hi, things go nasty very fast in the billables. Peter, do you want to tell us uh, another a horror story there? Well, I, I might just give you a very brief overview of what we do for our clients and <laughs> how we've managed to avoid some of these disasters touch wood to date. So we, we set up, we use Unchained, um, dealt with Parker in the early days and other multi-seek custody arrangements, but what we do is we do a multi-sig, multi-custodied arrangement for all of our clients who self-custody their Bitcoin. We want them to own it. We want them to have full self-sovereignty, but we want to set that up in a way that if they completely muck up everything that I do for them, there's a way for recovering their Bitcoin. And um, a story that we had was um, a great, uh, great family that we look after. We you know, got them to invest in Bitcoin. You know, it was a very sizable chunk of their investable assets. And the, I got a call from them uh, maybe a, a couple of weeks after, a month or two after that we set that up. And um, uh, the client said, oh, I've I've lost my hardware wallet and my seed words. Do I have a problem? And I was just like, <laughs> <laughs> lucky for you, we don't, we don't have a problem here. But, you know, we, we're down to two of three. So we need to basically get you in as quick as possible. Roll that out. Anyway, it was it was easily recoverable. We got um, third party unchained to sign. I signed on behalf of the client, and then we moved it to a new um, multi sig wallet with a new hardware wallet for them. And um, the the client thanked me that um, I saved a marriage. So um, sorry to uh, take business from you guys, but um, it was a it was a great story. That firstly we didn't lose you know over a million bucks worth of Bitcoin, and secondly we were able to uh, avoid any family court proceedings because <laughs> the the wife would have been very disappointed that um, they just ripped up over a million bucks. So yeah, we we've had uh, quite a few horror stories like that through support and uh, people they get locked out. And if the device works the way we design it to work, you know, when you have your cold card, if you forget your pin, the whole point of the device is not to let you in. And uh, you know, if you don't have a backup, uh, you could be screwed. So Amanda, you're a litigator, so you must have some pretty uh, pretty good stories there. I, litigation probably only takes up about 20% of my okay. practice. I don't have any Bitcoin related uh, litigation horror stories, but obviously with regard to fiat assets, there are plenty. Um, I'll just reiterate what 
everyone has sort of said, you know, sometimes your client says it's, it's not about the money. I don't care how much it costs. It's about the principle. It's like when you're looking at our bill, principle maybe isn't as important anymore. Hey, principal has bought me a lake house. When it's a matter of principal, yeah. I just think about paying that mortgage off. I love it. Yeah, yeah no, every uh, every single lawyer I know who deals with estates uh, litigation does say that as soon as the client says, uh, you know, but I don't like her or but I don't want her to have it. They often have to give the talk that, uh, you know, it's going to cost a lot and, you know, they wouldn't be in the right mind to uh to, to lose, you know, a million dollars worth in billable over $5,000. It does happen. So there's a really good point that's that, that can be kind of derived from what you just said there. Um, it doesn't matter how effective your inheritance planning may or may not be, whether the family is going to fight is really up to them, right? You could, yeah, you could yes. have... You, you can have no legal basis for for something, but you can find a lawyer that will say, "Well, if it's a matter of principle, so long as you know that this is a dubious claim, you know we'll we'll t- we'll bill you by the hour. You know you're going to put the funds in trust, and we'll we'll certainly do the work." And I, and I think that a, a, what that should translate to for the average Bitcoiner is that you know every happy family, not to quote Russian uh, literature here, but every happy family is happy for the same reason and every unhappy family is unhappy for its own unique reason. <laughs> and I think if we can appreciate the fact that as bitcoiners and having this really hard money should be affording us the time to uh, create this really hard family nucleus, you can effectively help ensure that this this dynastic asset can be handed from generation to generation with fewer fights and less billable hours associated with it. And I and I see the people that are the most effective at inheritance planning, the people that are clearly invested in their families' lives the right way. And I think that matters, uh, particularly when it comes to inheritance planning. You know, it's very common here that the lawyer's fee come out of the state payout. So the lawyers will get paid. <laughs> and, and you know, and you don't want that to be the biggest portion of the state distribution. Jeff, uh, do you have some some good Bitcoiner horror stories there involving DAF? Well, uh, so it's uh, unlike everybody else here. Well, except actually, Pete and or Peter and I might be in the same boat here. Believe it or not, even though I'm a lawyer, I've never been a litigator. I've never been to court other than as a witness. Uh, knock on wood. So courts are scary. Don't like judges. Uh, have avoided them uh, my whole life. I, you know, similar to Peter, one of the th- we for clients in the U.S. at Unchained, we have an inheritance protocol where you can work with our concierge team to make sure you don't end up in one of these uh, horror stories. And it's basically built around the idea what I kind of led off speaking about that you want to make sure that title and possession are always harmonized because that's where 99% of the problems really come into play, and that's how you can stay out of all of those really ugly situations. You know, I found that the majority of the horror stories I've heard by being in this business for over 10 years is that uh, oftentimes is the shadowy super colder husband who is extremely computer bright and does a bunch of cool stuff and makes them a fortune, leaves out the part where they educate the family about key recoverability and, you know, in their estate really uh, planning. So, you know, you have people along the way that, uh, you know, should not have been exposed to private keys when that that spouse goes to the experts between quotes to to help uh, uh, recover those Bitcoins, for example. This is not even contention or anything. It's just single spouse going to get the money. 
you know, Bitcoin disappears because there's no good chain of custody on that distribution. There is no means for 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 the, the remaining family to to really like take possession of the asset from what the, the bits and pieces and oftentimes a treasure hunt. Don't send your family through a treasure hunt, you know, to go find uh, metal plates on the third oak tree of your property because um, somebody else might accidentally get in there. You know, you, people forget where things are, documents get lost. So, you know, having, you know, proper description and instructions on how to handle things seems to be like a, a, one of the, the ways that I see people losing the most amount of money. A funny one is uh, you have often guys, especially when it comes to the smarter programmer who do set up things, they're very custom, non-default. So especially back in the day, they would set up derivation paths that are non-standard. So the Bitcoin is there, the family has the private keys. They don't know how to find the Bitcoin to find that address to then sign the transaction and get it out. So, uh, and, and the number space is, is ginormous. It's, it's almost as big as the size of the private key. So you're not going to find the Bitcoin. You know, we find people uh, do multi-sig, complex multi-sig. It's a custom multi-sig. People cannot recover. So uh, sometimes keeping it simple does help. That's the problem I look at and you know deal with on a day-to-day basis how do you uh protect um and and make sure that there is a smooth transfer to beneficiaries and this is where you know most bitcoiners you know i deal with and know basically their exit strategy for bitcoin is death and um so if you think about that and sort of you know work back and re-engineer it from that point that they don't want to sell any like having having a, a documented plan is really critical, and you know one of the things we've done over the years is literally document a, a Bitcoin estate plan protocol for clients that basically has all of the details to to do that. And you know the problem is is that you know most Bitcoiners who are in this space right now, you know, have effectively roll your own type custody arrangements that are absolutely fabulous for themselves. And this is where on a, on a personal level, I don't tell any Bitcoiner what to do with, you know, their own custody and the rest of it. It's, you know, this is the beauty of Bitcoin that, you know, become ungovernable. But, you know, everyone and, you know, my advice to any Bitcoiner is you do you. But, you know, the the day-to-day experience and workings that I've had basically is to solve for a very, very unique critical juncture in someone's life. So, Peter, I actually have a question in this where, you know, maybe it's, it's, it's actually for everybody here, too. Um, so one issue that I found when I was dealing with my own estate and like looking for, you know, advice and setting up uh, wheels and, and uh, trust and things like that. I remember the first time I talked to a wheel drafter that was sort of like a, a more a more sort of like bread and butter type asked me like blank on. So how much how much Bitcoin do you have? I'm like, I'm not telling you, <laughs> like, you know, I know you want to put on the wheel, but like, absolutely not because you're taking notes on your lawyer note taking system, right? That is going to likely get hacked if you get known for having Bitcoin clients, right? So like th- there is a, a massive issue with privacy, not in the privacy sense, but in privacy protection really, right? So for example, when you're drafting out your instructions, how do people normally handle keeping those instructions that are 
are as damning and as concerning as sometimes even the private keys, right? How would you suggest that people like keep those instructions private because they do have consequences of people finding out how much Bitcoin you have? Great question. And this is, this is a, I think, a very personal issue. Clients have different, a different range for what sort of privacy requirements that they need or have. One person who we probably all know here that, you know, is, um, absolutely fabulous at this from a privacy perspective and we've got great access to is Katan who runs Ministry of Nodes. He basically also works in, you know, and and does a, a great deal of work in that privacy space. Um, he recently gave a talk at the Bitcoin Bush Bash, which I attended and literally had three hours just talking about privacy for clients and, and how they can basically reduce their exposure to say hacks or privacy concerns and 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 this is where I, I don't pertain to be an expert in this but you know we basically get the best of the best and when it comes to that you know Katan is absolutely right up there from a privacy concern and making sure and mitigating any privacy risks that um, can be attacked um, another one probably closer in the US is you know Matt O'Dell puts his stuff out there and you know is the the privacy guy which you know, is sort of counterintuitive, but he sort of said, hey, I'll take a, the slings and arrows for everyone to be that privacy guy. But um, I, I think it's, you know, it's it's difficult to sort of talk about, hey, these are the privacy measures we take, <laughs> which sort of gives everyone an attack vector to say, that's interesting. I wonder if I can crack that. Let's have a go at this and see how good your privacy is. So that's sort of the catch with it too. Yeah, we, we see a lot of this. It was one of the reasons why we sell uh, void tamper bags with harder wallets and things, because... Once you start having all this material, sensitive material, right? Like it's not even the private keys, right? You need to handle this stuff and you might want to leave an envelope with a lawyer. You might want to leave, you know, an envelope with like, you know, accountant or, you know, somebody who you trust to maybe just keep instructions for the family. You may not want to attach that to the wheel because that could go to court. And, and you know, a clerk could accidentally leak that. Too, even if you do have some privacy requirements on on whatever jurisdiction you're on, people do screw up. Uh, I mean, we've seen the tax men here like screw up a lot of this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, they just oh, we just oh, whoops, we leaked a bunch of information about taxpayers. <laughs> you know, so we find that people handling things without computers to be uh, essentially like one of the best ways. People from all walks of life, from you know your plebe just having your uh, you know a few hundred dollars worth of Bitcoin all the way to to people with you know hundreds of millions of dollars don't expose your information to computers that be you know high quality document pictures you know instructions on how to handle bitcoin instructions on how to derive keys and and then find people who who can handle some chain of custody on the, those physical documents that ideally never hit a computer seem to to really work you know the least worst uh so far have you guys had some requests like this? I've requested, for example, for lawyers to not, for example, have any information related to this stuff in their computers. And they were uh, kind enough to to accommodate my needs. Do you guys see this? Do you guys accommodate weird Bitcoiner needs in your daily profession, Amanda? Yeah, obviously we we accommodate our clients' requests. You know, something to consider though is when I'm having a meeting with client and I'm taking uh, and I'm taking notes about their assets. One of the reasons that I do that is to protect against loss in the future. So if you have, 
even if it's not Bitcoin, if you have a um, rare piece of art that's worth millions of dollars that nobody knows about, if I have it in my notes, then I or if, when you die, we can go back through those notes and say, hey, that weird looking figure is actually worth millions of dollars. Don't sell it at the yard sale um, or something like that. But yeah, no, I definitely am cognizant of privacy concerns and, you know, having information about the amount of Bitcoin that someone has is not something that I'm interested in. I'm not interested in when I'm taking notes, learning about where your wallets and your backups are. It's more of a matter of saying we need to figure out a plan where you can get this information to your fiduciary or your beneficiary. And typically, um, you know, I can rough out a some sort of memo um, where you can fill in the blanks and you keep it in a place that you think is secure and that your beneficiaries will access it and also where you can access it because, you know, your plan might evolve over the years and as your custody changes and how you hold it and different wallets that you use changes. So that's not something that I want access to, but I want to be able to give you in, um, some guidance on, you know, make sure that your beneficiaries and your fiduciaries know about the asset, where you can keep the memorandum and instruction of instructions like that. And then maybe also reference a trusted friend who can help them access it if, you know, maybe they're not the most tech savvy. You know, Bitcoiners, I mean, I've met so many people in this community that I trust implicitly. You know, there are, I made a lot of friends and, you know, if something should happen to me or my husband, you know, my, my parents who would be taking custody of my kid, I would say, call this person. They will help you. Yeah. And, and it's fascinating. Um, I, I mean, I absolutely love the, 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 the suggestion and, and like the fact that having inventory of the assets is an important part of, of like handling, especially when you die. And, uh, but the, the idea of, you know, a professional giving you a, a memo inventory in, in a way that would be more useful to whoever is handling the state later is, is, is a great, uh, it's a great suggestion. I'm not sure if that's common practice everywhere, but uh, I haven't seen that here. So I, I might, uh, I might uh, take that suggestion and, and pass that on. And, uh, you know, another concern is, uh, especially like the, the world is in flux, right? I mean, like, you know, uh, macro is an absolute clusterfuck, uh, you know, the countries, you know, I, I live in a country that used to be free and all of a sudden we had martial law, right? Like, I mean, you, you simply do not have a clue where uh, your locality is going to be, you know, in 20 years from now. Like, it, it really is kind of scary. So that, that's part of the fear of folding in assets that are unknown to the state into known entities to the state, right? So, for example, if you bring your Bitcoin into your trust, right now, the, the trust is a known actor to the state and, and you know, you would have like inventory of the assets it has and, you know, all that good stuff. If the Bitcoin doesn't exist officially in any vehicle, right? And say your country is now, you know, a Maoist shithole, you know, like you could pick up and leave, you know, mind you, you're 
acting illegally, but you know, in that situation where you maybe you already live in a country that's a disaster like Lebanon, you may choose to leave with 12 words and get the fuck out. And if the state doesn't know about those coins, you have a higher chance of making it out, right? So I think a lot of Bitcoiners have that sort of optimistic doomer mentality about their assets. They want to be able to pick up and leave without the state knowing what's going on. Yeah, I just want to make a quick point of distinction that I thought was relevant there uh, based on the way you described trusts in Canada. That's not a known entity in the United States. So in the United States, a trust is not an entity. It's just a division of property rights. They are private. They're not publicly recorded anywhere. Uh, They're not created by government filing the way a corporation or an LLC or something like that would be. So that just may be something to consider. I just wanted to point out to people. So having your Bitcoin in a trust versus your personal name, uh, there's not really going to be that sort of privacy loss that you mentioned there regarding how things work in Canada. Yeah. So, so here, uh, if I remember right, again, I am not an expert like you guys are. The trust uh, itself, uh, you know, you do, you have your settler of the trust, you know, you, you do your clipping of like, you know, the five dollar bills or whatever to it. And, uh, and the paper of the trust is, 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 is private, right? All the trust, uh, like all paperwork is private. The issue is this trust becomes known because this trust is going to start owning stuff, right? So when you have a new corporation or when you have a piece of real estate and things, the filings of those other assets start doxing the fact that this trust exists, right? So it's very hard for you to walk that back in terms of state visibility of those things. They may they may request for tax purposes that they want to now review the trust terms. There is a different name for trust terms. I don't know the, what it's, the, uh, the, tr- the trust agreement. So the, just a, a quick thing about that. Well, I mean, the, the simple solution to that is just to use for st- stuff like real estate, uh, which is obviously very public. You just use a separate trust for that. It doesn't really cost you anymore to, to use a separate trust typically for that. It can just be a separate sub trust and no one will ever know because it has a different name. So, I mean, that's that's one suggestion I can give you off the bat. Peter, you asked, what about tax purposes? Typically in the United States, when we're talking about a trust, it is not deemed to be a separate, there are exceptions to this, but it is not deemed to be a separate entity from the grantor uh, during the grantor's life. So tip, most trusts are disregarded entities under what's called section 671 of the Internal Revenue Code. That means they don't obtain a taxpayer ID number. They don't file tax returns. There would frankly be no way to know that that thing exists at all unless it owns a property that is in the public record, like real estate. Or if you go and you open a bank account titled to that trust, obviously the bank knows and the bank could turn that information over to the federal government. But as I said, you can just use a separate subtrust for your Bitcoin with a different name, and that sort of obviates that issue. That's your concern. Fabulous. So here you would become known if you die, right? Because the the, the you'll become part of the like how the tax records are, uh, the filings are made and how the distribution is happening. So essentially it does get doxxed in one way or another. You, you will be found. We, we have that system here with the trust. Something that I would add is that uh, what Jeff was talking about is grantor trust. You can also do a non-grantor trust where it would have his own tax ID. And it's worth noting that in Pennsylvania, where I practice, Pennsylvania doesn't recognize grantor trust. So as far as Pennsylvania state taxes, um, it would be a separate entity. Yeah, actually, that's a good point. Pennsylvania is actually very unique in that regard. It's the only state in the United States that, that does that. 
Yeah. And then another another consideration is that beneficiaries of trusts have the ability to demand an accounting of that trust, at least where I practice. So even if you set up this separate trust and you have a trustee that's acting, a beneficiary can come and file a court petition and say, I want an accounting that is filed. And the trustee would have to file like a formal long accounting listing all the assets and the transactions included in the trust. So that's uh, that's very similar to securities uh, law here, where a minority shareholder doesn't matter how small that is one of the there's very few rights you have as a minority shareholder in a corporation here. Uh, one of those rights is an audited accounting of the corporation. I don't know about the trusts here, but uh, I, I would imagine that uh, once the trust is revealed, you would probably be similar. If it's a revocable trust in the U.S., in most jurisdictions, there's no right to demand that if you're a contingent beneficiary, meaning that if the person hasn't died, like if I set up a revocable trust to protect my privacy and I say that when I die, you know, my kids or something are going to get the assets, their rights to demand that sort of thing don't come into play until I die. So t- yeah. they would typically, in, in generally in most jurisdictions, not have the right to dox you that way during their life. You don't even have to tell them that they're named as residuary beneficiaries under the trust, generally in most jurisdictions in the U.S. in that circumstance. When you die, that's when things get a little more dicey, you know, for the reasons people said in terms of what they can demand, you know, versus not demand. And that'll vary a lot state to state. With trusts, you can jurisdiction shop. It's very easy, actually, to get a trust to be governed under the law of a state that is not the state where you live. You can appoint something called an administrative trustee in, say, Nevada. A lot of people use it for a variety of reasons. That administrative trustee basically does nothing except charge a fee. They're not involved in managing the assets or anything like that. But that's enough of what's called nexus to get that trust brought under the law of the jurisdiction that you're trying to do. Some people also do that with respect to offshore trusts outside of the United States and jurisdictions like Belize and the Cook Islands. That's a little dicier. Belize and the Cook Islands are a little dicier than Nevada because in the States, as probably you're aware with FATCA and things of that nature, a lot of places don't want to work with Americans or if they do, you as an American have to file various regulatory filings with the Treasury Department regarding your offshore holdings. So oddly enough, you know, your best offshore holding might be just another United States state that has favorable laws in a lot of circumstances and situations. You know, for the people that don't know about sheltering abroad, a lot of the international sort of bodies, I think it was 2014, there's been, there was an agreement made between most sort of like first world countries on how to handle tax sheltering essentially abroad, right? And then I don't even think it's like a sort of like an official agreement, but it was essentially an agreement of like how to crack down on all this stuff because, um, you know, it became economically viable for even, you know, the dentist, accountant and, and the lawyers to shelter abroad. And, you know, we all know that, you know, having an, if you have enough wealth, uh, you find a way right to shelter abroad. There will be a vehicle. There'll be a way of making it happen. It's just going to cost a lot. And the intent, as I understand, of these changes were to essentially just raise the cost of the basic bread and butter tax sheltering vehicles so that, you know, for example, 
Nowadays, most countries require that you prove that you have operations abroad in order to shelter the income on that on that offshore entity there. You know, of course, you can just hire a company that all that they do is pretend to be, you know, sitting in an office in, you know, Turks and Caicos or whatever. Right. Uh, but that, that has a substantial higher cost than the original. Just, you know, you pay your 100 bucks, 200 bucks a year and they just sign a thing saying that those are the directors. Right. Yeah, the point of all those agreements, to your point, is to make those sorts of things still available to Apple Computer, but not available to you and I. That's correct. Right? They're expensive enough that you got the velvet rope, right? Your gating entry. Yeah, I I mean, you know, if you get big enough, I mean, you will have facilities that are you know, nearly extrajudicial in a way, right? I mean, the law only applies uh, <laughs> in the way that it seems to apply uh, to people that can't afford to buy a small nation. So, you know, I think one thing that like I found to be great about this conversation is, um, you know, I know we dance sort of like everywhere and sort of it's, uh, it's to give visibility, which was my goal to people like me who are Bitcoiners, who, you know, hope to, to grow their wealth in this space. And, you know, I want to make sure that people don't lose money, don't make it stupid mistakes. And when they engage in some of this and they go read out there, you know, there is not a lot of good, like digestible information to read about state planning until you start talking to a state planner like plenty expert really, but that's not accessible to a lot of people. And I find that even people who don't have a lot of wealth to benefit from that, they end up, you know, really losing even the not a lot they already have when they die or even in life really with taxes. You know, I always say like, even though Bitcoin doesn't exist here, you know, your body does and the state wants their cut and family wants their cut. And, you know, you're going to have to live within that framework until you can escape to a citadel uh, someday. Hyper Bitcoinization, maybe the state dies one day. We can all just hope. But it is important that you that you understand and accept that that your body's still here. You can go to jail and, you know, your family might not be able to get your wealth just because, you know, they may not have title to it. So I'm, I'm super thankful that, you, you know, you guys are bringing some of this, this, this points and sort of like uh, going into this little tangents around this stuff. It's a very, very broad topic. You know, in, in that vein, if I may, just for a moment, sure. one, of, one of the issues that I think, you know, I see, I go to Bitcoin conferences, I get invited to speak, and I talk to people about inheritance planning. I think the unique approach that I take to inheritance planning, between you and I, I, I think inherent planning, inheritance planning is mission critical for a Bitcoiner. But we don't even have a community of Bitcoiners that understand the problem that inheritance planning solves. We are so early. Bitcoin is what just just turned fourteen. We have got a bunch of thirty somethings and even younger than that holding. Uh, I hope a majority of the Bitcoin that's out there, and the problems are only starting to percolate that this needs to become an issue. I've been talking about in in my in the Raleigh Bitcoin you know group talking about inheritance planning to to my crew for about five years, three years ago, I started coming publicly on on Twitter. And in the last year, it's become a thing that people are kind of talking about. Now we're seeing wallets, we're seeing companies, Unchained has just rolled out their fantastic inheritance protocol. Cusa has done the same thing, I think, last year. We're seeing more and more wallets. Uh, We're seeing people like Rob Hamilton uh, using and leveraging Miniscript to create tools that Bitcoiners are going to use. 
but before we start looking at what the key management solutions could be, I think it's important that Bitcoiners do their diligent due diligence on what inheritance planning, if you choose to leverage it, what it actually solves for you and potentially your family. Every time I get on Twitter spaces and talk to people about this, they every single 20 or 30 something year old just says, well, I'm just going to transfer it to my wife before I die. That is the functional equivalent of a shitcoiner trying to time the top of Doge or whatever the hell it is. You're not going to know when you're going to kick the bucket and die. And not just that. I mean, the tax consequence of that. I mean, like the, the state knows you died, right? Yeah. And they're going to go try to find out what you have. This is a common issue that I see is that oh, I'm just going to gift my Bitcoin to, to my children before I die. Gifting your Bitcoin conveys your tax basis. It's a, it's yes. a dumb fuck idea. Dying yes. with your Bitcoin is the sexiest thing you can do for your kids. Yeah. You need to make Jesus and Judas in the school play. Now let, let's at least have proof of burn, right? I mean, yeah. at least prove that the coins are dead. So we have a less, less supply of Bitcoin. Yeah. We all gain from that. And, and I think it, it would behoove me to mention that there are some really sexy Bitcoiners out there that are going to make the ultimate sacrifice and die with their Bitcoin. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> we need to normalize talking about that. And the term for it is network achievement. You achieve your, your Bitcoin to the network, never to be moved again, so that we can all enjoy the, the minuscule increase, you know, based on what your UTXO set looks like. Um, there are people that I know that are diligently committed to dying with their Bitcoin. More power to you. My children, thank you. Well, that's the Valhalla yeah. style, right? I mean, you go Absolutely. like a Viking. You want to be buried if you're stuff. I have a funny story about uh, Jared's point about how no one used to talk about this. So back, this is back when I was still in public practice before I came to Unchain. This was, I think, in 20, it was either 2013 or 2014. I wrote an article for Coindesk that was just about tax issues around Bitcoin, right? That seems like absurdly rudimentary today. But at that time, that was like, whoa, like people were, were just starting to think about how taxes might affect Bitcoin. And this was back when, when you wrote an article for on a website or a news site or whatever, there were comments in the bottom. Hopefully our listeners are old enough to remember that when people were allowed to type in comments. So I wrote this like completely vanilla anandine, like boring article about how Bitcoin is taxed in the United States. And all the comments were, this guy's a fed. You don't have to pay any taxes. <laughs> You're statist. Yeah, exa exactly. It was uh, one of my earliest uh, like practice, uh, Bitcoin practice. So you memories. came in blazing into the community, huh? Yeah, exactly. I wasn't the most popular guy after that. Something to consider is that, you know, if, you know, those early Bitcoiners who said that, you know, you're a statist, you don't have to pay taxes when you die. It's like, you're dead. You're, you're not going to jail. It's it's your wife and kids that are going to be left holding the bag. Like if, if you tell them not to report it and not to pay taxes on it, like, I mean, they're the ones who are going to yeah. suffer if it's found. You know, uh, what people don't know uh, related to that is, um, see, you know, maybe you don't sell. Right. And you pass it on quietly. Uh, your kids maybe don't sell, but maybe the grandkids do. Right. Uh, and if they sell and buy something that gets recorded that the tax man gets interest in it. Right. And they're going to go ask, what is your cost basis so that we can calculate some of the cap gains? Right. And if you cannot prove what your cost basis was, it's going to be zero. 
Worse than that is what happens if they look and and think, well, that was gained by illegal means. We're just going to take all of it, not some of it. We're just going to take all of it. That's the problem with yeah. The, and then you're in court, yeah. You know, for for a criminal matter now, that's going to cost even more in legal time with extremely bad consequences if you don't win, even if you're innocent, right? Like, so I, I got a I got a good horror story for you guys. Not take too much time. <laughs> go ahead. Let's keep this levity going here. I, I have a case <laughs> where a client passed away holding Bitcoin. He had just been pecked up by the feds right before he um, right before he died somewhat suspiciously. Uh, putting that aside for a moment, his Bitcoin holdings were illicit gains and they're sizable and none of the family wants to inherit it for that very reason. They do not want to touch it even though it can pass through an estate and in some form or fashion get cleaned uh, because it's an inherited thing. The feds never seize that despite seizing a variety of the other as- traditional assets. We actually recovered the computers from what was seized and they still had just plain text seed words sitting on the desktop of the of the computers. Nice. Um, but the family will not touch it. And it, it will just uh, a, a deem, for lack of a better term. It'll just sit there and never be inherited by anyone. What happens in your jurisdiction uh, to uh, unclaimed? Uh, do, 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 so here, I think it's like something like 30 years and then it gets folded into some government trust thing that I, I can't remember how it works. Yeah, so any heir can disclaim or announce an inheritance share. Uh, so let's say you died in test states without a will and um, you left two kids and both of those kids hate you because you're a piece of shit. I don't know. I, mean, I don't know what, why, why they hate you, but they can just sign a piece of paper saying, no thanks, not interested, and it will literally sit there until someone hands it over and sheets it to the state. So the, the term for that is a sheetment. Uh, and that would become property of the state for a later generation to review and consider whether they would like to make a claim okay. for that property. That's typically handled by a Department of Treasury in most states, uh, but obviously your jurisdiction may vary. If you live in North Carolina, there's a really cool website called nccash.com, which is like the most fiat name imaginable. But you can basically search all of these people that have assets that are just unclaimed. <laughs> And um, if you look on there, you'll see that I have an unclaimed uh, reimbursement rebate from Nationwide, and I ain't interested in $7.16. So kiss my ass, Nationwide. Fascinating. I wanted to, and this may not be the platform to be discussing this, but one thing that I find really fascinating in the Bitcoin space right now is the ability to time lock your Bitcoin. And the implications for what this brings to our professions, I think, are going to have a profound impact over time. And uh, I'll just give you an example. My brother, uh, about a year ago, wrote an article, Bitcoin is time-traveling energy. You can look it up. It was in Bitcoin magazine. But um, he fundamentally sent a Bitcoin 120 years into the future, time-locked it, and basically gave the private key uh, in the article. So if anyone wants that Bitcoin in 120 years, much to your point, Jared, about um, just giving your Bitcoin to uh, the community and having an incremental gain. He he basically forwarded that Bitcoin to the future, time-locked it, gave everyone the private key, and basically there's going to be a Barney in 120 years for this one Bitcoin <laughs> that um, everyone has a Bitcoin for, uh, a private key for. That's a race condition right there. The issue with uh, time locks is that, like, you know, if you have the original private key, you can still move the funds, right? It just essentially annuls the time lock transaction. So, for example, I could time lock something, right? Saying, you know, in 20 years, go to this address. But because I have the original private keys, I could change 
that so essentially that when that transaction comes to be those funds are not there anymore so so that's one issue with uh, with time locks so and and i say this because i've seen people wanting to plan uh their uh, their distribution right the handing over of the money over time locks and uh not being careful enough with the original keys and the original keys are still a key to the kingdom right mm. so until that transaction happens so you have to be super careful with that one thing that's going to get very, very interesting in, in a few years, because this stuff is complicated, it's called MooSig. Uh, it's essentially multi-sig using uh, a taproot. Yeah. And with that, you're going to be able to do true threshold signatures where you're going to be able to have, you know, keys and sub keys and in very complex setups where like each key can be extremely de-risked. So you could have like, you know, I need my lawyer to sign, I need the kid to sign. You can make a, a huge party sign, a, a signing party by everybody. And you can have a bunch of other fallbacks as well. There is a company called Revolt by Kevin, who's trying to do some of that stuff as well. This, this space uh, and, and the, the custody or, or at least the, the distribution of coins, uh, aside from the law, just technically speaking, it's gonna change a lot in the coming years as some of these solutions start to appear. Uh, it's already getting a lot better. I mean, I see a lot less people losing money. Another issue too that I see is as computers get better and it's cheaper for you to, to, to try to break essentially encryption, there's a lot of people out there that accidentally or through bad practice have weak private keys, right? So instead of throwing a hundred dice to generate their private key, they only threw, you know, like 20. Right. And then they got lazy or something. So you're going to see uh, a lot of uh, coins starting to disappear, <laughs> essentially, through no hack, really. It's just somebody else derived that poor entropic, uh, uh, the poor entropy on that uh, private key. Uh, we see that already with mistakes. You know, guy goes and presses, you know, the same dice number to generate a key or uses a flawed uh, hardware wallet or a flawed computer that like, you know, it's not really giving the correct entropy to the digest that happens for you to generate that. Uh, so it's something to keep in mind because when you pass on, let's say you pass on the seed plate, right? Wonderful, family gets it. It's a metal plate, the seed is there, it's never spent. You know, it goes three, four, five generations down. Nobody has spent those coins, right? But the guy did a good job generating those private keys, right? So maybe the computers are just fast enough, not, not to break Bitcoin, it's not going to happen in any reasonable lifetime, but they're, they're going to be good enough to break those poorly made uh, private keys. Another one is like you have AI with predictable text, right? That's how the current models for all this cool AI that everybody loves to talk about happens is they just predict which word comes next. That's essentially how it works, right? It does not do anything smarter than that. Uh, it's just very good at predicting the next word and it can write an essay to you that way. If you picked words out of your own mind, right, uh, for your seed and you're not using a real random way of picking those words, uh, you could have a computer that knows a lot about you through reading all your tweets and stuff and figure out that, you know, predictably speaking, those are the words you probably pick. And it comes up with a fascinating 1 million, 2 million, 10 million list of words that then you can go and try to find the coins for. So, so anyway, it's just, it's just something, I guess, to, to add to this uh, from the technical side that, uh, you know, we could see in the future as a, as a huge, huge weakness uh, uh, in how people handle this. In, in that same vein, you know, the, the other competing interest in this is this idea that 
if and when you decide that you want to die without a will or with a will, and you're basically forced into probate or maybe a mitigated version of probate because you have a, a will and not a trust. In North Carolina, for example, the kind of information that goes onto a probate application is not just your name as the decedent, as the dead person, not just your assets, but the name of your heirs, their home addresses, and what they're going to be getting. It's all readily calculable. Their age, and with the advent of how popular uh, public information has become online, you can go online, you can search someone's name, you can find out where they live, you can find their cell phone number with mu without much effort. This is not just a risk to, you know, predictive text and maybe your C plate, you know, you never move your Bitcoin because you never bothered to educate your heirs. Going into probate is absolutely a public risk because you are risking all of your assets and your heirs. You're providing the world your heirs home address and you're saying this is how much they're inheriting. Well, there, there's going to be people who just watch for that. There's going to be professional oh, yeah. bad people who all that they do is go after widows of Bitcoiners. Yeah. So this is actually, uh, if you look at how people have treated traditional assets, you can predict that they're going to do the same thing in Bitcoin, but probably more aggressively. I think it's clear cut. Everyone in here would agree with this, that Bitcoin is a much harder asset than real estate. But if you look at how the, I don't want to say call them sleazy, but for, for ease and convenience, sleazy ass motherfuckers treat real estate that comes through probate. You die and you leave a, a piece of property to a family member. That family member will have 60 offers on that house in this current market before the body's cold in the ground. <laughs> or real estate nice. agents trying to list that property. So, I mean, exactly. you, could, you can imagine someone, you know, a, a good actor reaching out to your, your beneficiary saying or your executor saying, hey, if you need help with, with accessing your Bitcoin, I'm an expert. Send me your keys and exactly. I'll get it for you. I mean, yeah. we see a lot of scumbags in this space already. Like there is people out there. I'm not going to sort of like put names and stuff, but there is a lot of people in this space already on Twitter that have like a proper profile that like, you know, claim to be security experts and claim to be this and claim to be that. And they get invited in podcasts and it's tricky, man, because like, you know, you hear some of the stuff these people say and you go like, oh, my God, this is not an expert. This person is going to make you lose all your money yeah. and you're going to sign probably a waiver of liability when you engage in their services and uh, money gone. <laughs> this one of my favorite memes in this space is that meme and money gone. Oh. <laughs> yeah, but no, in, uh, you said you said earlier in the context of, you know, uh, better uh, wallets, better UI, better UX, um, and seeing a reduction of people losing uh, Bitcoin. On, in that same vein is, you know, this correlation of more people getting scammed. I get probably 20 calls a week, people getting scammed with the most basic bullshit scam. It's something as simple as, hey, go to this website, and if you invest, we'll give you a return. And I had I had a office record breaking uh, quarter million dollars put into one of these scams by by a potential client. Wow! There's nothing we can do. These people aren't in the United States, and if they are, there's nothing you can do to stop them. And I think educating your heirs matters. Yeah, education is everything. Like part of yeah. part of our products is we we don't give that user experience that you may get in some of the other hardware wallets. Like when you get your cold card, we kind of force you to do a few things because we need you to understand that your seed is kind of a big deal. You don't, yeah. because most people just skip through, through warnings, just skip through everything, don't care, right? 
And what we were seeing is there's a lot of people who buy a hardware wallet, do everything right, but they don't understand that that seed, there is no backseas. So when somebody that seems believable goes in their, in their DMs and say, hey, I am a, a, a ledger support person. Uh, we had a bug. Uh, I'm trying to help you. Can you tell me your seed so I can help you? And, and people don't understand that the seed is kind of a big deal. So they go, they type it out and money gone, right? Yeah. It's very important that like the products and services in this space emphasize, you know, in your professions too. It's like, you know, a person is going to put a seed right in front of you as a lawyer, I guarantee you, and say, oh, how do I get this? Or what do I do with this? Right. It's like, please cover this up. Right. There's cameras everywhere. There's like, I don't want to see it. Right. Like you don't want to be questioned that maybe you took the money. Right. As, as acting in their behalf or something. It, it, it's, it's so fascinating. And, and, and this happens a lot. You know, people do get their money taken because all it takes is a simple picture. And then somebody's going to retrieve those funds later. In, in that vein, we have this exact problem when we're doing a probate administration and someone brings us the family laptop and we have to hire, you know, some uh, computer savvy expert. Not only do we have to, does the does the estate have to pay for someone from office to sit with a computer expert, they have to pay for the computer experts. We're going to pay for the cameras to screen record everything they're doing and videotape everyone that's touching that computer while the client's there. Because if, the, if we find seed words and that Bitcoin disappears, one, it's on an open distributed ledger. We can see that it took place in my office because based on the date and time, it is anxiety inducing for me. That's why I charge as much as I do. I mean, I, not to not to be a, a jackass about it. It's just terrifying. If I've got that laptop and that Bitcoin disappears, who's going to get blamed? No, and there's no insurance for that, right? Yeah, at no, least. Nothing. I mean, like, you know, you have these moments, you know, we call those key parties, right, in the industry. So, like, you have a key party, you know, like, there's a certain level of, of like, concern. Like, you don't know if they're laptops, when you open, it, are going to erase things, if they're going to, like, if there's booby traps. Like, it's, it, it's, it's super, super tricky. So, that, that's why, like, you want instructions to reflect, like, what to do. So, for example, you know, you use void evident privacy bags, you know, for each part of the secrets, including the instructions. They're clearly denoted on the outside saying, hey, you know, part A, part B, part C, part D, you know, instructions, <laughs> you know, uh, you know, like little stickers that say uh, no photography equipment around, for example, right? Like your phone is constantly being like, you know, it's backdoored. Everything is backdoored. So, I think we're going to see a lot of uh, a lot of best practices come out of this as this case is like become more broad, uh, especially with shitcoiners that are a little bit faster to uh, to burn through those coins. So, guys, like we're running like uh, we're closer to the end now uh, of this conversation, which is like we can go on this forever, really, because it's endless. And, it, and it's a very interesting topic. I, I guess like I want to kind of go around now and we're going to add this to the show notes. Resources. What are resources that you recommend that are like go-to links, that are go-to people? If we had to put together a very nice list that's not crazy long, you know, of, of like fantastic resources for people to start their journey into like,
like how to set up their states, how to like what to look for, uh, how to maybe like deal with some of the key management, how to do chain of custody, uh, how to maybe prepare some of that, that sensitive material. What are links and resources that you guys think people should go reach out or maybe they're themselves, y yourselves uh, as people to, for, for people to, to reach out to? Uh, why don't we go around here as I see on my screen? Uh, Peter, you're first. Uh, I'm, I'm happy to basically put in uh, a recent presentation I gave as a resource. And basically, it it's probably starts whole life cycle of purchasing Bitcoin, talking about, you know, what entities you want to buy it in and how, and then basically works through to an arrangement that can work for your you know, for your estate, for your beneficiaries, covers off on a whole host of things like different types of entities and um, how that works. So that's something that, you know, we form our, our advice on and basically happy to share that with everyone so that they can start thinking about the things that we think about. So I'll forward that to you. That's great. I, I was speaking through the, the presentation. It's, uh, it's very good. Jeff. So I've made it with this far without shilling too hard. So I'm just going to shill now. Uh, the unchained, the unchained <laughs> no, no, please shill, guys. You guys have a good product. So please go for it. Thank you. I appreciate it. The Unchained Inheritance Protocol, I mean, this is exactly what it does. Our concierge team provides materials, including one of the things you mentioned with tamper-proof bags uh, and other security advice to you and helps and guides through all that, passing the keys down through the generations. The protocol also provides some stuff that you can show to your attorney in the event. Some people out there, honestly, are just going to live in parts of the country where you're not going to find an attorney who's a member of the bar in your state that's super familiar with Bitcoin. Um, so, we have some materials in there to, you know, help your attorney with certain issues and just some advice on, you know, how to go about finding an attorney. Thank you. And mind you guys, like, I guess like this, this should be, I guess, repeated 50,000 times is that your jurisdiction is different than somebody else's jurisdiction. Never take advice related to any of this stuff, tax, the law, like anything, it, you know, conceptually is really good to know. There is a lot of similarities, but like do find a person in your specific jurisdiction to start giving you advice on this stuff because you could really royally screw up. <laughs> Anyways, uh, Jared. You know, I'm going to follow Jeff's lead here and, and shill for a minute. Although I don't want to be a shill, I guess I, I'm going to need to lean into it at some no, point. No, listen, you, you guys are good experts that deserve to be employed. So, like, there's nothing wrong with that. Yeah. So I want to give a shout out first and foremost to Steve Jeffress, who, who kind of has run the Raleigh Bitcoin meetup and, and runs a website, utxo.live. Fucking genius Bitcoiner. The guy has just been around and helped a lot of people. And he's helped edit a book that I've written called Bitcoin Inheritance Planning. I've not published it yet. It is basically a book that defines for the average Bitcoiner the problem that its inheritance planning solves. It runs through what happens if you die without an incapacity plan, what happens if you die with an incapacity plan. It, it explains what intestacy means in a very homogenized approach because of the jurisdictional limitations imposed on having 50 different states. But equipping Bitcoiners with the, the necessary education so they can go and meet with a lawyer and understand very simple things like how, Bitcoin, uh, how lawyers bill, how you can go and talk to an inheritance planning lawyer and not mention the B word. 
and still come out with an estate plan or a trust-based plan that can work. Educating um, Bitcoiners as to trust-based inheritance planning. And if we can equip more Bitcoiners to understand how inheritance planning works and then educate them on how to use those plans, you can design a trust-based plan without ever talking to a third party about the B word and then understand it well enough that you can go and fund your own trust with your Bitcoin, obfuscating the need for any third parties to know that you have Bitcoin in those uh, in that vehicle. My plan is to have this thing published in the next 60 to 90 days. I'm happy to give it away if you shoot me a message on, on Twitter. I'm not trying to make any money. I just want to educate Bitcoiners. If you have a Bitcoin wallet that is trying to focus on inheritance planning, I will offer my service free of charge to assist you. I don't need to worry about making about making more money. Thank God for Bitcoin. I want to help uh, builders build and I want to help wallet developers make better inheritance products. Uh, shout out to Jeff and Unchained. They're, they've got exceptional product that they've just rolled out. Shout out to the guys at Casa as well. While they certainly have dabbled into some shit coins here recently. <laughs> and, and not to throw too much shit at anyone. I absolutely love Ooh. it. No, no, I, I, I gave, I gave <laughs> them uh, my share of shit. So, uh. yeah. they, they do have a pretty good inheritance protocol as well. But you know, I'm excited to see what's going to continue to develop in the space. But I want to encourage Bitcoiners out there to, to, to invest the time they spent understanding Bitcoin in preserving their hardest asset for the next generation. The amount of time you spend understanding Bitcoin is about the same amount of time you should invest in understanding how to protect your Bitcoin for your family. Don't be lazy. You know, that's a true thing for wealth in general. The easiest way to become a millionaire is to start as being a billionaire. You know, it, it's fascinating how easy it is to lose money, either through mistakes or through like just, you know, like not understanding what you're doing. Uh, wealth preservation is, it truly is the the, the hardest, uh, the hardest skill to have. Amanda, what what resources uh, would you would you suggest, and uh, what do you just shill and uh, just uh, give us uh, give us your suggestions? Well, the resources that have helped me personally, I'll give Jeff a little shout out. I followed the Unchained's blog. I think that they have a lot of great information uh, over on the Unchained website. That's great. Um, you know, I also listen to Rabbit Hole Recap and TFTC. Marty Ben and uh, Odell both have uh, educated me a lot. If you have, you know, trust specific questions, you know, anyone can or, or estate planning specific questions, you can reach out to me. I'm licensed to practice in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, so I'm most familiar with the laws of those jurisdictions. But my law firm is also a member of this Meritas uh, legal organization where we have contacts across the world. So if you need help finding an attorney in your jurisdiction, let me know. I'm happy to reach out for you and, and find someone who can help you. They may or may not be familiar and knowledgeable when it comes to Bitcoin, but you know I'm always happy to help if I can. Also, you know if anyone is in the southeastern Pennsylvania, Philadelphia area, come to the Bitcoin John meetup. I'm always interested in, in speaking to anyone and, and getting to know people and, and seeing people in real life. Um, it's a fairly new meetup, but we've had the signals pretty high. We've had um, a couple of good, uh, good meetings and, you know, it's a lot of fun. So. 
Thank you. Um, so, guys, this is gonna this is gonna be passed around. Uh, I think a, a a a fair bit of lawyers as well, and other other uh, financial advisors and things like that. Oftentimes, the customers, the clients, will find their way, right? Either by screwing it up or by hiring good good professionals. But where can professionals, either lawyers, accountants, or you know planners? find resources if they're not the same that you guys described on how they can become well educated in in bitcoin and understanding that that private key that they just got handed by a client is kind of a biggie or that uh, maybe writing down those notes about how much bitcoin that that customer has in their computer note system is kind of a liability where can the professional service providers find more information aside from, you know, listening to the wonderful uh, Bitcoin podcasts everywhere. Do you guys have like some some good uh, education pointers where those folks can find uh, more technical understanding from their perspective? Yeah, I think the best answer to this question, you know, if, if it's a technical legal understanding, the answer to that is, well, there isn't much. Yeah. You know, there's a bunch of continuing legal education seminars that you have to take as a lawyer to maintain your license. You go and sit on one of those and it has the word cryptocurrency, you're going to be inundated with shit coins and it's going to be uh, less than helpful. Um the the reality that I can that I can see I, I see a fair number of lawyers kind of pass through the local Raleigh meetup uh, where they try to gain a technical uh, understanding of the Bitcoin protocol. But if if I could just uh, by by way of explanation, we run the most toxic meetup there is. As soon as someone mentions a shitcoin, we just never see them again, and and that is a blessing and a curse. But at the same time, the very fortunate thing about the Bitcoin learning process is that it's a you got to roll your own understanding it's very much like studying to be a lawyer you no one teaches you to be a lawyer law school teaches you how to think and then you go and you fuck it up a bunch of times and hopefully you get it right eventually without you know getting yourself in too much trouble um so i i really don't know that there is a great answer maybe someone else has a better answer than this but really truly it is an understanding an understanding of the bitcoin protocol can allow you to make analogous analogous comparisons to other assets so we can figure out a way to best treat some Something, and that understanding is going to change and improve considering how young Bitcoin is and how little the law understands about it. You really find that, uh, you know, you don't have to worry too much about shitcoins. They have a very short lifespan. They don't often make it to the next uh, uh, generation. Uh, <laughs> you know, really, like, you know, folks are just daily trading them. So it's not really as much of a concern. It does not seem to be a demographic that's interested in multi-generational issues. So just as being practical is a waste of time. Yeah. Jeff, uh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I wanted to say that Jared like really nailed it because the answer to your question is that you refer to them to the same resources you'd refer to any beginner in Bitcoin to, to understand the technical nature of it. And once they understand that technical nature of it, the legal side ain't hard. It's not different really, you know, tax wise than, than any other piece of, yeah, any other piece of intangible property. So it's really, that they've got to get that same technical understanding that any other beginner would get. And I'll, I'll going to tell a very brief story here to just show how far we'd come in the old days, back before the, uh, the bat flu, uh, and before they suspended in-person continuing legal education for that reason, I used to teach all the time, you know, CLE. I, I loved it. Cause I love, I would never teach the webinars once they moved in that direction because it's boring. Like you, you want to get in there. You want to be in the room with people. You want to talk. You want to get the feedback. It's fun. 
So no matter what I taught on, whether it was like tax, you know, trust law, whatever the case might be, like various areas of expertise. Well, for obvious reasons, I taught a lot on IRAs, right? I would cram or shoehorn somehow a little Bitcoin part into it, right? I'd be like, okay, well, you might start to be starting to get some clients that want to have Bitcoin in their IRA, or they might have Bitcoin in their trust, or they might be task questions about Bitcoin. Here's the information. You know, when I started and for several years thereafter, I would get audible laughter, uh, like I would get like uh, like uh, audible and forward derision and mockery for even bringing that up. I would get comments. People would say, I don't represent criminals. I don't need to worry about this. I got that a lot too. So I just kind of wanted to make the point that things are changing and that's a very positive development. And, you know, not, not just me, this goes to everybody here in this panel should feel very good about that because I think all of you have on some level been a part of that. You know, I just want to put one last thing out there. Uh, if people are looking into trust and things, now is a fantastic time. We're at the bottom of a bear market for you to freeze your assets. And, uh, you know, this these markets don't last forever. Uh, you know, the pump is going to come uh, and, and then you're going to find yourself with, uh, with a bigger cost basis there. So I guess with that, I mean, I, I just want to really, really thank you all. I know you guys are uh, very in demand people and uh, I hope I, I don't get billed for those two hours. Uh, um, <laughs> it's already in your email. The invoice that's, <laughs> that's fast. Yeah, no, uh, seriously. Thank you so much. This was a wealth of knowledge. Uh, hopefully, uh, maybe we, we, we talk again, you know, in a few months and, uh, and you guys know how to find me. Some of you, uh, directly have, uh, worked, uh, with me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you so much, guys. Uh, if you have any, any final thoughts, uh, Peter. No, I just want to thank you for, um, having and hosting this panel. I think it's been really educational for myself personally to get a better understanding of the US. It's also nice to see other professionals working in this space. It, it's felt like quite a lonely space down under um, working in this space as a professional, but um, great to see other professionals in this space. And I think it's a, a massively growing area. It's a huge opportunity for all professions to embrace because I think the, you know, the asset class is only growing. So it's going to be a, a more prominent feature in, in all of our work moving forward. So thanks for hosting and thanks for the introduction to all. Great job, everyone. Thank you. Amanda, any final thoughts? No, I just, just want to express my gratitude for uh, you and everybody else on this panel. Um, this has been this has been great and I've really enjoyed it. And I hope that it's it's useful to your listeners and maybe we can just keep this conversation going and maybe convince one person that they should be planning for their future and their family's future. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's uh I, i've been in that mission for a little while jared yeah um I, kind of final words um if you have any questions you want to chat to someone just to get kicked in the right direction get a referral reach out to me on twitter at bitcoin planner uh happy to point you in the right direction uh secondly you are listening to this podcast you are holding the hardest money that humans have ever seen you have an incredibly low time preference lower it just a smidge more and do some inheritance planning simple as that thank you uh jeff any final thoughts Nah, I already shilled the inheritance protocol. Go to unchained.com if you want to check that out. <laughs> awesome, guys. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to follow at Bitcoin Review HQ or get in touch on Telegram, Bitcoin Review Pod, or Bitcoin Review at CoinKite.com. We don't have a crystal ball, so let us know about your projects. Leave your boostagram on this episode and we'll try to read it on the next episode. 
If you don't know much about Value for Value or Bitcoin Podcast 2.0, go to bitcoin.review slash v4v. Mm-hmm.